You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're all back this week. Last week you were subjected to just me talking for a few minutes. But it seems like UGA got their Wi-Fi fixed, and David Grubbs is back with us. That's uh, David Yay. Grubbs, graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia. How you doing, David? I'm pretty splendid, and glad that I don't sound like I'm on autotune. Yeah, I wish you all could have heard it. Maybe we should have. Uh, maybe we should have recorded a little bit of it and put it in there so people would know why we couldn't do the show. <laughs> also joining us as usual is Nathan Gilmore. He's an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well. I've got my office windows open, and I have office windows, which is cool. And a nice breeze is blowing in here. I'm feeling good. Yeah, I have my windows open too, but it's still too hot. Uh, Florida is. Uh, we're we're we're, uh, we're beginning our slow slide into uh, summer here in Tallahassee. <laughs> I don't have any windows. Yeah. Anyway, I, I thought you lived underground, David. Don't you? Well, don't you uh, pretend to be a hobbit? Well, but even that, even hobbits have windows on the 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 the, the rooms on the left side of the hallway. Uh, I beg yeah. your pardon. That that would be a, a hole in a hill, Michael. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm gonna put a hole in your head. <laughs> Look to see the violence inherent in the system. <laughs> uh, you can tell we haven't spoken in a while because we're, uh, we're a little loose. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, our, our blog as well as our podcast has been fairly quiet over the next week. But Nathan Gilmore has promised a mystery review of a very important book in the next few weeks. So we all look forward to hearing that. Also, mm. I'm supposed to be writing a review of that new Salinger biography, and I just can't can't get it started. So maybe maybe you'll get that, and maybe you won't. David, do you have anything <laughs> a stewing? Um, well, I've got I've got that review of the Fred Sanders Trinity book that's actually been out since October. Which, Dad Gummit, I know I know what points I want to make about it. I just got to write the thing. You did have your first post on that blog in several months. Yeah, I did. I did. I um, thought it was a good post. <laughs> Well, See, I, what, what he makes up for in uh, volume, he may, uh, he uh, what he misses in volume, he makes up for in meaning. Yeah. Right. And what Thanks. I lack in significance, I make up for by writing a Bible post every week. It's like putting out a book of theology every year, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> that snide remark actually kind of fits into our topic. We're going to be talking today about the literary and philosophical notion of carpe diem, seize the day, which you probably know from uh, being confronted by Robin Williams or a Robin Williams sound-alike uh, at some point in your high school career. But I must admit that I am always a little bit bewildered when people like Robin Williams start talking about seizing the day. Nathan, can you explain to me what that means? How do I go about living life to the absolute fullest? 
I can make a good attempt at it. This is a phen literary phenomenon, like Michael said. It's something that arises largely in poetic traditions, uh, but it has filtered to us through the English Romantics largely uh, in a form that stresses personal fulfillment. Uh, you know, we'll talk about some of its historical roots here in a little bit, but the kind of carpe diem or seize the day that comes to us through dead poet society on one hand, uh, in modern television teen shows on the other hand, uh, largely has that romantic stamp on it. And the idea is that you have a true self that needs to be expressed, that there are systematic things out in the world that are keeping you from expressing that true self. Uh, and the best thing to do is to ignore all of those pressures, responsibilities, and so on that keep you from being a conformist, uh, to bring another common term into this, uh, and simply be yourself. And I mean, one of the best illustrations of this that I can think of, I mean, from the last couple years of pop culture, is the television show Glee. Uh, now, in that show Glee... <laughs> I mean, first of all, it is a heavily, heavily ironic show. Uh, I mean, the best material really comes from the bad guy character, Sue Sylvester, I mean, who has some of the best one-liners on TV right now. But mm -hmm. always coming through, uh, usually in the person of the Glee Club sponsor, um, goodness, Will, Will Schuster. Schuster, there we go, my goodness, why did I forget that? Uh, is this ethos of seize the day. And, and here's, let me define it in terms of what it isn't. Uh, in Glee, there is no overarching sexual ethic. You've got characters who, for various personal reasons, are not having sex. You have characters who are, for various personal reasons, having lots of sex. And they all just kind of coexist. You have characters who are very vocally atheist. You have characters who are evangelical. And they just kind of coexist. But when it comes to should you conform to the hierarchies and the structures of the high school caste system or the clique system, uh, the answer is almost uniformly no. You should go and sing, not because there is any sort of rational, inherent goodness in singing, but because in singing you are resisting that structure, grabbing hold of that identity as a glee kid, and seizing the day, being yourself. Uh, David, you, <laughs> it's, it's hard to get through this with you chuckling over there. I mean, it's, what do you have to add to that? It's equally hard to imagine Nathan Gilmore sitting down and watching Glee every week. <laughs> but it's true, folks. It is true. <laughs> See, my feeling oh. is you have to choose between Glee and Community, and I pick Community. But anyway, I'm sorry. Well, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I mean, do you guys have anything to add to the general idea of Carpe Diem? I think one thing to, I mean, just to go back to the Robin Williams reference is he doesn't just say seize the day. He says, seize the day, make your life extraordinary. As if that's yes. his paraphrase of what carpe diem means. Um, so I, I think, you know, since, well, since Dead Poet Society is the way a lot of people, especially a lot of people teaching English classes, picked up that phrase, um, I, I, I think having having the Robin Williams gloss of Carpe Diem in mind um, will also help to understand kind of the well the the stature of that phrase in our culture. Am I misreading popular culture? Or does it seem like in recent years the the whole Carpe Diem thing has been 
kind of a, adopted by the, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the mentality that would lead to the particularly loathsome expression, let your freak flag fly. Where, where carpe diem used to mean maybe make make what, uh, the best you can of life, and now it means uh, be as weird as you can, uh, don't, don't you know, engage all your appetites, do 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 whatever you can, and don't worry about any kind of consequence. Am I am I misreading that? Was it was it always that way? Mm. Is it is it just that popular culture in general is getting is getting uh raunchier? more deck more decadent? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, Michael. But I mean, we need to realize that in the 17th century, that's precisely what carpe diem meant. It meant you were going to be dead soon. So have as much sex as you possibly can while you're still young and good looking. Squeeze it all into one enormous ball. Yes, yeah. yes. All right. So, <laughs> so well, we'll talk about Marvel later, but he would let his freak flag fly. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. What I'm saying is it's cyclical. You know, I mean, for instance, and, and I'm going to make another Glee reference so David can get his chuckles. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Uh, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you do have characters who, you know, their form of carpe diem is indulging themselves. On the other hand, you have characters uh, like the Rachel Berry character uh, who really seizes the day not by having sex, but by saying, no, I'd rather not right now. I'd rather pursue other things. So in other words, I mean, I think that even within the sort of postmodern 21st century moment, carpe diem takes on a range of manifestations. So it doesn't have to be synonymous with abject hedonism. But it can be. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go backwards. I uh, I read a book once, and I for the life of me, I can't remember what book it was. Maybe one of you can. I read a book it. once too, Michael. But this book I read, whose name I, I can't remember, nor the author, uh, it divided the Western world neatly into Hebrew, uh, spiritual, and uh, Gre- Greco-Roman philo- philosophical narratives. So that, that uh, book made back a great again. <laughs> that book great made a great deal of sense to me. So I think we should go into it here. <laughs> Uh, both the uh, both the Hebrew scriptures and the the Greek and Roman philosophers have some texts that advocate some version or versions of uh, carpe diem. Let's uh, let's have a cage match here. Grubbs, you take <laughs> the Greeks and the Romans. Gilmore, you take the Hebrews. What do each of your groups have to say about seizing the day? Yeah, I don't I don't think the the the, the particular Greeks and Romans that we're talking about would show up to this cage match. Um, because <laughs> we're talking about the Epicureans. Uh, the phrase carpe, di- carpe diem we get uh, actually from the Roman poet Horace, who was a contemporary of Caesar Augustus, uh, who taxed the whole world and incidentally provided the sort of opening set piece before Jesus getting born. Um, anyway, Horace was running around in that empire as well, writing, writing poems that were inspired by Epicurean philosophy. And so one of these odes, uh, which, well, here's, here's a, a bit of it. This is Ode 1.11. Um, I, I doubt that's Horace's notation. So <laughs> be wise, strain the wine, and since life is brief, prune back far-reaching hopes. Even while we speak, envious times have passed. Seize or pluck the day, putting as little trust as possible in tomorrow. So that's uh, that sees, or uh, this translation I'm reading says, pluck the day, that's carpe diem. Um, now, since it's prefaced by a, uh, 
a line that says, since life is, bring, is brief, prune back far-reaching hopes. Um, I think Horace might not have paraphrased Carpe Diem as make your life extraordinary. Um, but the hedonism thing is, is also uh, something to, to take up here. Epicureans, uh, the followers of Epicurus, were frequently accused of being, um, well, the party animals of the philosophy world. Um, so that it's so that being an Epicurean these days is actually a synonym for someone who just pursues pleasure for its own, its own sake. Uh, a libertine. Um, yes, basically. But if you actually look at the maxims of, of, of Epicurus, um, his, his foundation for that, that seeking of pleasure, he, he deems pleasure as the highest good, but he thinks that the most pleasure comes from a life of quiet moderation that doesn't mess with anybody else, so nobody else messes with you, and you have your pleasures, but you... Um, you don't indulge them to extremes, and therefore uh, you keep yourself in mental and physical shape um, to enjoy them to their fullest. You don't destroy your body um, like, well, like various celebrities that we see who basically uh, party themselves into the grave. Um, that was not Epicurus style. He wanted uh, nice, moderate partying allows you to keep it up for a while. His sitcom season never would have been canceled halfway through. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Um, but he he was also not terribly ambitious. Um, he he thought that pursuing wealth, pursuing power, pursuing honor and admiration were all results of of unlimited or not properly moderated desire. So, um, I th I think not only Horace but even Horace's uh, uh, I. I I guess, uh, well, centuries back mentor uh, would have disagreed with Robin Williams that carpe diem means make your life extraordinary. It seems more like Epicureanism means make your life as modestly pleasant as possible today. He's almost, he's almost an ascetic when you read him. He, he seems very monkish to modern, uh, to modern eyes, I think. Mm -hmm. Or he did to mine. Not to the Stoics, right. though. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. The Stoics thought he was outrageously hedonistic. Well, and the Church Fathers. <laughs> oh, Lord well, of mercy. Well, the whole reason we lost Epicurus for so long as a stream in Western philosophy is because the uh, the early Church just couldn't stand For reasons that are, I mean, very clear if you read him, they just mm. couldn't stand him. I mean, well, if, uh, if you read yeah. Epicurus now, he seems uh, he seems almost like one of the new atheists. Mm -hmm. Well, Ex and, Less self-satisfied, that... but... Yeah, we we got to consider that the Epicureans' current uh, reputation stems also from the fact that they were um, they were materialist. They did they didn't believe that there was anything else real in the universe except atoms randomly bouncing around. So there was no future life. There was no life after death. Uh, there was no no ethics beyond the pragmatic beyond pragmatic neighborliness in the immediate present um because once you're dead you're dead and your atoms scatter and you know become something else so uh for i think understandable reasons the church fathers found that particular approach repugnant <laughs> 
and so, um, yeah, he gets this party animal reputation, which I don't think he entirely deserved. Yeah, I don't know much about his followers, but certainly he didn't. I mean, if if you've if you've never read Epicurus, you can read his entire corpus in an afternoon, and and you should. He's 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 very readable. He's very interesting. He's very modern in his way. Mm. Well, that's the uh, Greek and Roman side. Nathan, what do the Hebrews have to say? Well, first of all, I want to talk about a couple of common phrases that have come to us through the King James Version of the Old Testament, uh, but that often get mixed up together. And the reason it's important to keep them separated is because in their own right, and also when they get translated over into the New Testament, they really have very different ethical weights to them. Uh, One of these phrases comes in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. Uh, The oracle from God is criticizing the people of Jerusalem because when armies are marching on Jerusalem, the oracle says, the people should be repenting of their sins. They should be putting on sackcloth. But instead, verse 13, the people are saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, this is, you know, an 8th century B.C. oracle. It far predates... Uh, the man Epicurus, but that sort of mentality, that sort of, you know, we have only got a little bit of time to enjoy, so we might as well just go at it and be hedonistic and all that sort of thing. That mentality, you know, is something that Epicurus discovers he doesn't invent, all right? Uh, Now, the other one, and the difference here is very, very important. Uh, You've got in the book of Ecclesiastes, which of course is a very different book ethically from the book of Isaiah. You've got the book of Ecclesiastes in the eighth chapter saying, uh, ultimately, all of these things that human beings do are vanity. Uh, That word, of course, is a recurring theme in Ecclesiastes. Uh, And ultimately, the best thing for a man to do is to eat and to drink and to be merry. Uh, And in that context, it's very different because it's not in the face of a particular providential divine judgment coming in the form of an invading army, but it's a statement about human existence in general. The idea here is that in human life, uh, there are things that people pursue, ambition, wealth, uh, romantic attachment, all these sorts of things. And where Koheleth, the preacher, the Ecclesiastes, uh, of course the book is named after a, a position within a community, What he ends up saying is, in the face of all that vanity, it is actually a good thing for people to go to work, do their job, eat a bit of food, drink a bit of wine, have a bit of fun. Uh, And honestly, you know, I mean, when I was a younger and fierier man uh, and before I had kids, you know, that sort of thing just rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought, you know, we are on God's holy mission and we have a duty to perform in this world and this mentality just can't do. I, I don't know if it, if, if it's the fact that I've sold out to the man or the fact that having kids has made me more mellow or what, but I see the wisdom in that more than I used to see. So, I mean, the, the, the big picture, Michael, is that, you know, there is no singular, just like with the Greeks, like David was saying, there is no singular attitude towards, the brevity of life, which is really the background against which Carpe Diem makes sense. Uh, There's a range of reactions, and, you know, I think that there are a range of reactions within that holy canon precisely because there are a range of moments that God puts in front of us. 
That makes sense to me. Uh, well, let's uh, let's move forward just a little bit, David. As we've discussed earlier, Christianity is largely responsible for the popular downfall of Epicureanism, but uh, there are at least a couple of places in the New Testament where Christ and the apostles seem to recommend something similar to to, to Epicureanism. Uh, when Christ tells us not to worry about what we should wear, is he telling us to seize the day? Because that's often how you see it in kind of popular spirituality books, and, and especially like I'm thinking the beat the beat era poets and novelists. Uh, but mm. is is that what he's saying? Or uh, if it's not, what's the difference? They're kind of a "don't worry, be happy" vibe. Y- yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um well. It, I I, th- I think we, well there is a similarity. He says, uh, you know, don't take any thought for your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink, or for your body, what you'll wear, um, because is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Um, and he seems he seems to be saying, don't get hung up in all of these, you know, little material needs. Life is life is bigger than that. Um, you know, don't, as as the Scottish say, uh, don't fast yourself. Don't don't stress yourself out. Um, and he points to uh, the birds that God feeds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. But the heavenly Father feeds them. And then, uh, regarding clothes, consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet Jesus says, even Solomon wasn't dressed like one of those. So if God would so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now, when you read the whole thing together, he's not just saying, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't don't stress out, man. Don't worry. Be happy. Here, take a toke. Um, <laughs> this is... Probably, Jesus this is, probably smoked weed, man. It comes from the yeah, earth. Yeah. Uh, no, Rastafarianism hadn't been invented yet, so I don't think so. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, if you, if you, if you put it in its context, you find out that all of this don't worry business is set in the context of a God who is gracious and powerful and loving, who looks out for, uh, the practical needs of the creatures that he cares about. Um, and so, uh, and so Jesus points to even things that people at that time would have had little regard for, um, you know, uh, grass out in the field, you know, the, 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 the little, the little flowers that grow on, you know, on the grass in a, in a meadow. And God cares about that. God cares about the beauty of that. And so how much more will God care for, um, the creation that he put in the world to bear his own image? Um, you know, it even even birds, um, which to uh, a settled agricultural uh, co- culture at that time, um, the birds would have been a nuisance. The birds are what pick the seeds out of the ground when you sow them. Um, but the heavenly Father is actually feeding them while you're while they're being a nuisance to you. You may not like those birds, but God likes them and He takes care of them. And so this this don't worry business is set in. Uh, Set in the context of a God who, who takes care of of what He made and what He loves, um, which is very different from Epicureanism, in which 
the pleasure of life is what you do to while away the time until you're worm food. <laughs> because that's the most good you're ever going to get. Anything to add to that, Nathan? A um, couple things. I mean, first of all, I, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and promote myself. Uh, that very passage was actually the gospel reading in the Revised Common Lectionary just a couple weeks ago, so listeners can go to the Christian Humanist blog and read my little take on it. Uh, but mm-hmm. second of all, I, I think that you know David is right that this idea of providence as framing everything up is very important because elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, although you know it is in Paul, so you know we're talking about something heavily contaminated by that Greco-Roman narrative we, tra- we were talking about. Uh, sure. <laughs> see, I can't even do it with a straight face, Michael. Anyway, uh, you know, in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, in the course of Paul's lengthy discussion of resurrection. Uh, he actually uses that Isaiah phrase uh, as a, I think, as a nod towards that very Epicurean philosophy that David ended with. Uh, he says, you know, if indeed none of this is true, if indeed when we die, that's the end of things, well then, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And, you know, <clears throat> basically Paul says, you know, uh, if you're going to dispute me on the resurrection of the body, you might as well go Epicurean, right? Now, I mean, our mm. listeners should note that that's not the same as saying that Epicureanism is the default for Christianity by any means. Uh, instead, you know, <laughs> Paul seems to think that, you know, Epicureanism is where you land uh, if, in fact, the resurrection of Christ is not true. So, you know, I, I, I like that emphasis on uh, Providence, David, because I really do think that that is you know, and the, and the providence connected with that doctrine of the universal resurrection is really what makes sense of Jesus's admonition to not worry or not to concern oneself or busy oneself with food and clothes and drink. Mm-hmm. And I think there's uh, another parable that that Jesus tells that that tells it a bit uh, even more starkly when uh, he tells the the story of the rich man who has such an abundant harvest that he doesn't have room to, to store it all. And so he tears, right. he, he's, he's planning to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and I'll have the surplus and then I'll take life easy and eat and drink and be merry is what he right. says. And that's the other um, Old Testament saying from Ecclesiastes. Yes. And God <laughs> says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? Um, a very Ecclesiastes thought. Ex- exactly. But you, you got to, I mean, on one hand, on the level of a human being living on earth, um, the idea of saving up for tomorrow isn't necessarily a foolish idea, but it becomes foolish when you, when you put it within the context of, uh, when you're using God as as the context, and uh, you know, as it says, I believe in James that that when we make plans, I'll go to this and such a place yeah. and do business. Um, that when we say that, we should say, if God wills, I'll go to that place and I'll do business. Um, you know, because it's about where you put your faith. Right, and 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 uh, recognizing that you know when I build my barn, God can send a tornado and knock it down, and I should not be trusting my barn. 
you know. So that that seems like uh, I don't know maybe a, another side of, of the carpe diem, um, you know, not not just the the, the hedonism of it, but also, um, uh, that's sim simple human prudence can be rendered foolish in uh, in in the in the context of of God and his 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 sovereignty. Most things that are simply human get rendered foolish in the context of God, though. Yeah, true enough. Well, let's talk. Uh, let's talk literature for a minute. Uh, Carpe diem, as as we've been talking about, really springs from literary works more than philosophical works, and it's certainly an evergreen theme in Western literature and culture. Uh, let, let's let's think about some of the most striking usages of the of the theme uh, that we we know of and talk about the ways that they adapt and modify traditional meanings and Hebrew meanings and Greek meanings and, uh, you know, the rest of the meanings. Uh, Nathan, let's start with you. What do you have prepared? Well, I want to talk about sort of the roots of the good hedonistic carpe diem mentality, uh, namely in a bunch of poems by Church of England priests. Uh, well, actually, some are not my <laughs> priests, but <laughs> I always like to start that way when I teach these poems. Uh, one of them is by Robert Herrick to the virgins make much of time. Uh, this is the one that Robin Williams character uh, cites from in the, in the movie dead poets society. Uh, and again, I want to emphasize that it's always framed against the background of the finitude of human life. In other words, there is a limit. We don't know where it is. Uh, today could be the last day you live. So therefore says 17th century, carpe diem mentality uh you might as well have sex today because you might not get to live long enough to get married uh and you know the to the virgins make much of time i mean it is framed in terms of finding a groom uh so i mean there's at least a nod to the ritual life of the church which is good since herrick was in fact a <laughs> priest in the church of england uh when you get over though to andrew marvell and his poem to his coy mistress uh, that kind of goes out the window. And <laughs> Marvell, I mean, it, so many things go out the window when you get to Marvell's poem. Uh, this is the one that, you know, I actually got attacked on on my uh, faculty evaluations last semester because I was teaching them dirty poems. But anyway, Marvell's poem to his coy mistress starts out with an appeal to, again, the finitude of life. There's a limit to it. Uh, he's saying to this young woman, uh, it's done in the form of sort of a dramatic situation. Uh, you might as well come with me. Uh, death will be coming your way pretty soon. But then he goes much farther than Herrick does. And in fact, he says, you know, you can put me off for now because you're young and beautiful, but pretty soon you're going to be old and withered. and No one's going to desire you. And then he goes farther than that and says, and in fact, when you're dead, you can be coy with me and not have sex with me, but once you're in the grave, the worms are going to insert themselves wherever they see fit. Uh, <laughs> now, you, you can, yeah, yeah, you can see why uh, I got some bad reviews on this one on my faculty evaluation. But, you know, in that period, that, you know, mid to late 17th century, you know, the Carpe Diem tradition is at its hedonistic height. Uh, it is all about flying in the face of really a, a Christian theology of self-denial, 
a Christian theology of the sacramentality of marriage. Uh, in the face of all that, they say, all right, all of that would be fine if we lived forever and we could wait forever to enjoy ourselves. But in a world where we could die any moment, it really makes more sense to indulge ourselves, to have the sex, to eat the pie, uh, to do all those sorts of things that we want to do right now. Well, I do like pie. Uh, yeah, I, I realized as I said that that I was I was doing some kind of weird '80s hairband thing, but uh, I'm gonna let that slide. What are the uh, what are the historical circumstances that led to that mentality? Was it the English Civil War? Or- well, I mean, there's all kinds of things in the, in the 17th century that sort of lead that way. I mean, one of them is a a diminished sense of an overarching theological authority. So, in other words, you know. Uh, the Catholics will tell you one thing, the Protestants will tell you another, but you can never deny what your drawers are telling you. All right. Uh, <laughs> but there's also wars going on. There's also, you know, the plague keeps surfacing every few years during this period. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to believe both that the teachings about the sacra- sacramentality of marriage and about the purity of virginity might be under question and to believe that my own personal life could end any given day. So, I mean, this is poetry by the young, uh, or at least in the persona of the young. In Herrick's case, you know, he was an old man writing to the young. Uh, But the whole idea seems to be that, you know, there are certain things that you really can't deny if you're honest, so you might as well run with those. Well, Grubbs, where do you find uh, Carpe Diem in literature? Well, I gotta gotta take a nod to the old English, um, mainly Shocking. because I don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got I gotta go there. Gotta go there, because uh, the the Epicureans. Epicurus looks at life and and he says, um, "I came out of randomness and an, uh, this random emptiness, and I'm gonna go out into this random emptiness. So I might as well enjoy what I've got." here. Um, you know, as, as as much as I can, and if you know, if moderation plays a part in that, it's it's because enjoying my pleasures moderately keeps me alive longer to enjoy enjoy them more. <laughs> um, but there's a little story in Bede's ecclesiastical history that seems to say that, uh, well, the pagan Anglo-Saxon at least would have uh, probably not found Epicurus all that persuasive. Um, King Edwin of Northumbria has been approached by uh, missionaries and who, who have given their spiel, uh, at which point he turns to his council and asks them what their opinion is. And one of those counselors steps forward and says, the present life of man upon earth, O king, seems to me, in comparison with that time, which is unknown to us, like to the swift flight of a sparrow through the house wherein you sit at supper in winter with your aldermen and your thanes while the fire blazes in the midst and the hall is warmed but the wintry storms of rain or snow are raging abroad the sparrow flying in at one door and immediately out another whilst he is within is safe from the wintry tempest but after a short space of fair weather he immediately vanishes out of your sight passing from winter into winter again so this life of man appears for a little while, but what is to follow, or what went before, we know nothing at all. 
if therefore this new doctrine tells us something more certain, it seems justly to deserve to, deserve to be followed. So the, 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 this Anglo-Saxon counselor of a king here is saying the fact of life that led Epicurus to Epicureanism uh, seems to him to lead rather in the opposite direction, the desire to know what comes before and what comes after. Um, and the idea that I'm a, and the mystery before and the mystery after detra actually detracts from the warmth and the conviviality of the hall as the sparrow flies through it. The sparrow flying through is reminding you of the mystery that 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 squats at both ends of your life, and uh, there there there's something to to the to the mind of this this uh, uh, well presumably historical person. Uh, there's something in that that is not endurable, and they're actually grateful for the the Christian revelation that that says, "And this is the mystery to follow." Um, on the other hand, we have much later in the Middle Ages. Um, I wanted to give a hat tip again to Dead Poets Society because we have the Carmina Barana. <laughs> which are uh, a series of medieval drinking songs sung by students in German universe, German medieval universities, um, which, uh, well, they, they begin singing about, uh, well, the, the, the perils of trusting fortune and how awful it is to be down on your luck because fortune like the moon is all changeable. But there is one little uh, one little song towards the end of the cycle called uh, "Tempus Est Jacundum." It is the time of joy. Um, it is the time of joy, O maidens! Now enjoy yourselves together, O young men! Oh, I am all a flower now. With my first love, I am all a fire. A new love it is of which I am dying. Um, and he continues on in that theme until you get this uh, this next to last line. Come, my mistress, with your joy. Come, fair girl, for already I die. Um, you know uh, that 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 little bit of uh, of of Herrick <laughs> uh, is is already here in this medieval drinking song, this university drinking song. Apparently, they had their own Robin Williams um, <laughs> in the ta in the tavern with them. Uh, singing along with them, saying, telling them to seize the day, which apparently also includes seizing the barmaid. I believe I would have cut his head off. <laughs> if I'd been in that bar with uh, medieval Robin Williams. And, well, and incidentally, I, I mean, David, I mean, let me try this out idea out on you. I mean, it seems like this sort of thing is a natural fit for sort of the university life because the university life is by definition a span of time that is going to end at a certain point. You're going to graduate, you're going to leave, you're going to do other things. Uh, it seems like, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this sort of carpe diem mentality is a natural to arise out of that life setting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just thought that was really fun. Wanted to throw it in there just because, well, apparently Dead Poet Society actually might have a little bit more to do with the history of, of the Carpe Diem trope than, well, than we might have even really fully noticed. But, right. Yeah. I, I was going to say it's, an, it's a natural for university life because it's also 
one of the first little pieces of philosophy that a lot of people come across when they're young and it's something easy to understand and more importantly it's something that's very easy to allow you to feel one up on other people and with that in mind i wanted to talk about henry david thoreau (laughs) (laughs) because when we're well played sir (laughs) because when we're talking about people that students encounter for the first time when they're 18 19 years old and who allow them to feel one up on other people nobody does it better than Thoreau um Walden of of course is not really about nature as some as you as you might assume it's about it's about uh going to the woods to live deliberately and of course what he realizes when he gets there is that most men live lives of quiet desperation And, and and so his his going to the woods his escaping from society uh is a way of of living life to its fullest it's a way of of living more authentically more i don't know another word uh to use there than authentically i guess and and it's it's something that allows him to feel superior to society now of course thoreau is an utter hypocrite uh his mother his mother does his laundry he has lunch every sunday at the emerson's house um the other thing he leaves mostly unspoken is that it requires incredible privilege to be able to go to the woods and live deliberately. He's squatting on somebody else's land and somebody just lets him do so. So, I mean, I, I think Thoreau <laughs> is good to look at because it does demonstrate the extent to which the carpe diem mentality is the province of middle class people. Mm-hmm. Nobody, no, nobody, nobody living hand to mouth is thinking about seizing the day, because to seize the day you have to be able to drop certain things that you can't drop right. if you're living hand to mouth. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I've offended anyone who loves Thoreau, but uh, I do not love him, <laughs> and it's it's for reasons very closely related to to Carpe Diem. It's his whole, it's whole attitude behind uh, Walden. Yeah. I love the idea of Thoreau and Emerson sitting sitting at Sunday dinner, eating their chicken, and talking about how great it is to be rugged individuals. It's well, Emerson's a little more complicated than that. We could talk about Emerson on on some other podcast, but Emerson's not quite the self reliant uh, guy. He he claims to be in some essays because there's a bunch of other ones that balance that out. Right, he wrote mm. about six hundred essays, and not none of them really <laughs> mesh together terribly well. No. <laughs> I, I think it's on, you know, you know what he says, a, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin, uh, uh, I've, now I've lost it, a foolish consistency is a small mind, a small mind, yeah, mm. <laughs> so, anyway, that's the, that's the literary stuff, unless you guys have something else you want to bring up. Well, I mean, just following up on Thoreau, I mean, he is also possessed with, I mean, I'm going to use an anachronism here, but I mean, I, I think if he were pulled into Bill and Ted's phone booth and popped out in 2011, uh, he would very easily identify with the libertarian philosophy. Yes. I mean, he is just absolutely fascinated with the railroad barons. Uh, He's utterly fascinated with commerce and trade and all those sorts of things. And, you know, uh, you know, just thinks that if the government would stay out of his business, then everything would be better. Yeah. Ooh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I've I'd, I'd forgotten about it um, over the week, off. But uh, <laughs> Epicurus, Epicurus also, if you read his maxims, um, his uh, his his notions of 
statecraft and his notions of, you know, being being moral within society all come back to this rational self-interest. Right. I'm yeah. I'm I'm going to you know try to be neighborly to you to you so that you leave me alone, <laughs> and I have right. the, the the most pleasant life that I can have. Um, you know, but yeah, that that the uh, yeah the 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 libertarian um, definitely is showing up in Epicurus. So do you have to be Ron Paul to be to seize the day? Um, <laughs> I hope I I I don't think so. <laughs> So, well, I was just going to follow up David and say that, I mean, this is why the Stoics hated them so much, right? Because, I mean, the Stoics had this ideology that, yes, Fortuna will do what Fortuna will do to you, but the proper response to that is to live responsibly to your neighbors. In other words, you know, it is entirely sensible within the Stoic philosophy to serve in a public role and to be ambitious and do, to do all those things. Uh, so, I mean, when they look at the Epicureans and say, you know, these guys just want to live in their little gardens and be left alone, I mean, that just strikes them as utterly selfish and utterly ludicrous. Mm. Well, um, I can't, I can't say I disagree with them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nathan, you're clearly in a ranting mood, so I'm going to give you the opportunity here. Uh, closely yeah. Closely related to the notion of seizing a day is the idea that we should live every day as though we were dying tomorrow. Uh, I know that uh-huh. refuting statements like that is <laughs> one of your hobby horses. You did it in the Heidegger episode. I wonder how many people made it all the way through the Heidegger episode, which was much heavier than this one. So uh, for new listeners, for uh, people who couldn't quite stomach you and me talking German philosophy for an hour, uh, just for, for everybody's enjoyment, uh, use Heidegger or just plain old logic and tell me why I shouldn't act like I'm going to die before this goes to iTunes. Well, the nice thing is you don't have to refute this. All you have to do is take it seriously. Uh, you know, this was a trope within youth group circles in the late, well, actually in the early to mid-90s when I was a youth group kid and also in the late 90s when I was in college, this idea of, you know, uh, if you're really taking Jesus seriously, then you'll live as if Jesus would come back tomorrow. Uh, and, you know... Or you die, really, whichever comes first. <laughs> right, right. You know, you could die tomorrow, Jesus could come back tomorrow... Either way, the results are the same. What I realized at some point is that if I knew, if I knew, not believed, not feared, if I knew that I was going to die tomorrow or Jesus was coming back tomorrow, the first two things that I would do is I would quit my job and I would stop taking out the garbage. And, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) here's the dilemma of actual lived human experience. All right. It could be that on my way out my office door after recording this, uh, a an Emmanuel College basketball player might throw his basketball at a teammate, hit me in the head, and kill me on the spot. It would be the first basketball. Wow, they're throwing their balls hard. Yeah, I think it'd be the first basketball-related death in this classroom building. But I figured uh, he'd be aiming at you, Nathan. <laughs> yes, but he'd have to tell the police afterwards that he was trying to throw it to a teammate. I see. <laughs> but at any rate, you know. It's also entirely possible that I could live to be 110 years old. And in fact, I just saw a news story earlier today that the last World War I veteran died uh, either this morning or last night at the age of 110. That's insane. There was uh, still a World War I vet? <laughs> there was one left. Oh, another... yeah. Yep, he was the last one. 
Uh, so either one of those things are possible. All right. So, I mean, what makes human life more difficult than the what if you would die tomorrow trope would indicate is that I don't know which one of those things is going to happen. And in fact, you know, although there are moments in the history of Western intellectual culture where people say taking one's own life and ending one's own existence uh, is ultimately an authentic act or an honorable act or something like that. By and large, uh, human civilization has frowned on, especially the heads of household, uh, taking their own lives because they tend to leave widows and orphans behind. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the real character of human existence, as I said on the Heidegger show, but like Michael said, most folks probably didn't want to listen to an hour and 10 minutes of German philosophy. Uh, the real character of human existence is, yes, I might die right now. I also might live to be 110. And I've got to live with both of those realities. I've got to put money in the bank just in case I make it to 110. But I've also got to make sure that I'm not stiffing my neighbor to put money in the bank because I might die in five minutes and have to talk to God about why I was stiffing my neighbor. So it makes human existence a lot more difficult, a lot more anxious. Uh, but, I mean, if you face those things, ultimately I think it is a more honest way to live. Uh, David, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting here. I mean, what would you add to it on a more ironic and polite note? Well, the, the funny thing is, that as you were talking, I, I, I was thinking of, uh, well, another literary reference that uh, manages to pick up Marvell's rolling things into a ball, um, except this particular character, um, J. Alfred Prufrock, rolls, yeah. is going to be rolling that ball towards an inevitable question. Um, right. Except that poor sad character in the 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 Elliot dramatic monologue um, ends up not rolling the ball towards the inevitable question. It's much less inevitable, and he seems to be overwhelmed by the notion that he is a mortal creature. He sees, you know, he sees the the you know the the mortal footman hold his coat and snicker. Um, <laughs> or eternal, I don't recall. Either way, um, he, he he sees death lurking lurking before them, and so in the end, he doesn't ask his question, and he never gets the answer um, because he decides that um, he he's he's going to live. He he decides he's going to live in inside of a world in which only one thing is possible: his his failure and his death. He do, he doesn't ever do anything uh he doesn't ever do anything differently um right but it's so, not a grand melodramatic uh, it, death it, that poem it, david is that the poem that has the line life is very long that's uh holloman is it holloman yeah. okay yeah well it is still pretty daggum grim <laughs> yeah, yeah that that, <laughs> but, that uh, would pretty much be a good uh epigraph for all of Eliot's poetry life is very yeah. long <laughs> but I, I guess my point is this: that, that if you live your life as if you're dying, I think I think Alfred Prufrock is actually a character who lives as if he's dying, as if as if he's always going to die, as if that's that's the the eventuality that's going to happen, and the way it affects him is I think a lot more realistic than um, than the way some imagined you know Herrick or Marvel character do, does you know it. If if you think that death is the inevitable thing, 
um, why not just curl up on inside, curl up inside yourself and wait for it? Yeah, what makes you so uh, sure you'd be a hero? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, uh, Gilmore's negativity notwithstanding, I think we've gone deep enough into the literature and philosophy to illustrate that. There is something good for us to learn from Robin Williams and all the others, so let's wrap up by going around the horn and talking about what our relationship to the present and the future and the day should be. Uh, Grubbs, let's start with you. Well, I, I think starting starting where we just left off is, is a good thing. Um, we don't know what tomorrow holds, um, and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't behave as if we do. Um, and so there, there is a, uh, you know, a, for us a real potentiality in in what we decide to do in 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 the here and now, and so holding our plans loosely, and uh, uh, I, I like to, um, you know, so I, I'm I'm often a planner, but every once in a while I get the fit to. Do something spontaneous. You know, I'll go to a restaurant I haven't been to before, and I'll order something I've never eaten. And, you know, that's that's wild and crazy. But you know, that that for me, you know, that for me is is seizing the day, but also reminding myself that um, the world can be bigger than my than my routine, or bigger than the uh, the plans and and the the plans and the the ideas of how my life can go. Uh, that my expectations shape it to be, um, and so yeah, I, 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 that that for me is my my version of carpe diem. Um, on the other hand, I think we have to remember that uh, all of this seizing of days and not knowing what tomorrow holds takes place within the context of of a God who cares. And a God who uh, who who does who does know, and so you know, I, I I've I've always got to consider that broader context in which my actions are taking place. If that's vague enough, <laughs> it is vague enough. Nathan, <laughs> I would say that the starting point for thinking about one's days. And, you know, I'm thinking of Psalm 90 that says that we ought to number our days and that our days are limited and what we have is three score and ten, four score if we have the strength and all these sorts of things. Remember that all of that comes in the context of Israel, which is a royal priesthood for all of the nations. And remember that when Christians talk about the finitude of life, it's in the context of being the body of the king of all kings. And wherever mm. we are gathered together, we are constituting the body of the ruler of all things. And I would just point our listeners to the realities of the Christian confession that, in fact, these things that Epicurus would strive for, the simple pleasures, the food, the drink, these are not bad things. These are gifts from God, but they're also not the horizons of our existence. In others, we are a part of a story that is larger than those pleasures, even if on the way 
as we go, we enjoy those things. And so I guess, you know, to return to Glee, just because I want to get you to laughing about the fact that I watch it again. Uh, I think that, I think that one of the things that we can take from that is that even though there is a perpetual call to resist the case system that constitutes an American high school, the jocks and the, and the rich kids and the musicians and the so on and so forth, there is no real reason to do so. Uh, in fact, every once in a while they actually have a, a, an actor playing one of the high schoolers say, Hey, this is our existence. I'm going to try to rise in this existence as much as I can. And nobody ever really offers a reason why not. And I would challenge folks to live within that Christian tradition that says that there is a body and there is a kingdom and there is a temple of God that is far larger than the nations and the structures and the systems of humanity of which we are a part. And thus endeth the sermon. Michael, what do you got? I'm probably going to restate a bit what you guys said, but as a uh, dyed-in-a-wool existentialist, my problem with the common attitudes towards Seize the Day is that people tend to assume it will result in freedom from responsibility. And mm. as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no such thing as freedom without responsibility. So uh, mm. to, to the degree that we're supposed to seize the day, that means seizing it within the responsibilities we are called to fill. Mm. And uh, if you want to do that, I'm on board. But you can't just chuck it and go to the woods. Sorry, life don't work why, that way. Why, why not, Rabbit? <laughs> yeah, we saw what happened to Rabbit, didn't we? <laughs> Read that fourth book if you uh, if you haven't yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should uh, once you we should get you guys reading them, and we could have a full conversation about the Rabbit books. But uh, I I think Updike makes it fairly clear in the first Rabbit book why you can't just chuck it all. By the fourth one, it, it should be evidently clear. Yeah. Well, what what happens when you seize the day? You end up, well, I don't think it's any surprise. That book is called Rabbit at Rest. You end up dying when you're 55. Mm. With, some, uh, <laughs> with, some, with, with some other circumstances I don't want to spoil. Or being what? Charlie Sheen. <laughs> it's true. You end up being a national punchline even on, uh, even on sad little podcasts. Well, <laughs> on that note, David, what are we talking about next week? Well, if we've gone the, the, the way of pleasure in the present right now uh, for this episode, uh, I wanted to kind of move in the opposite direction. Asceticism is something that's cropped up, uh, I think, in some episodes before. Um, and uh, I, th I think it's, it's, uh, it's worth considering, uh, lo looking at a little more deeply in the ways that it plays out, um, particularly in the history of the church. So, uh, yeah. Asceticism, denying yourself. Please tell me we're going to be talking about Simon the Stylite. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about him uh, and a particular uh, Russian saint who basically starved himself to death and seems to have had no particular other reason for sainthood other than that. But anyway. Well, you, uh, you noble listeners have that to look forward to. In the meantime, <laughs> you can check out our website, which is christianhumanist.org. From that splash page, you can make your way to our podcast or to our blog. You can also email us with your show ideas, complaints, uh, libertarian screeds, uh, Thoreau fan mail, whatever else you're going to send us. Uh, that, that email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. 
for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore. This is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Me and my friends the trumps on us for life. We pounded out of four times. Our songs are sing-along songs. This old town is lifeless. Then I wear our whole ashes. Work at the mill until you die. Work at the mill and then you die. We're gonna build something this summer. I'm gonna make you